Revelation chapter 2. We, uh, we have been making the rounds, so to speak, through the churches in Asia, and we come to the smallest city of the seven cities that are mentioned in Revelation, the city of Thyatira. And uh, John takes the smallest city and writes it the biggest letter. It's the longest of the letters to the churches. Um, Daryl, pull me down a hair on the that bottom slider. All right, let's see if this is a little bit better. Revelation chapter 2. Thyatira was, um, there weren't very many pictures of Thyatira, but let me go ahead and show you the map real quick. We are, um, so John is down here on Patmos. We're getting ourselves oriented again. And he writes to Ephesus, Smyrna, comes all the way up to Pergamum, and then back down to Thyatira. One thing I noticed on another map, it's not on this map, but this this road right here actually has a jut-off that comes up this way to Pergamum. So he may have gone that way. Um, that's not shown here, but it was one of the semi-major roads, wasn't the major road, kind of the, the um, state highway instead of the, instead of the interstate or the U.S. highways. Uh, that are shown on the map here. But now we're in Thyatira. Thyatira is in a valley between two valleys. So um, there is a valley on either side of Thyatira, and Thyatira is in this like little veil that connects those two valleys together. Um, and so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of mountainous region around the city, but not on the city itself. It's kind of an out of the way place, um, except for this trade route that runs through it, you wouldn't even know about Thyatira. Um, but because of the trade route and because of uh, what the major road that ran through there uh, on the way down to Sardis and Laodicea and all, it would go eventually much further than that. Um, this is one of those, this is one of those places that the only reason anybody knew about it was because it was right smack dab on the road. Um, it was really a small town, but it was well known for its merchants. In fact, Thyatira had more trade guilds than just about any city in that region of Asia because there were tons of different merchants there. There were merchants from, uh, uh, that did all kinds of things. If you, in fact, if you remember in the book of Acts, when Peter or Paul and Barnabas go to Philippi. They meet a lady named Lydia, and she becomes the first convert in Europe. She is from Thyatira, and her her particular merchant uh, trade was dealing in purple cloth. Really, was more like a dark red than a purple. But um, we're not going to name that color for fear of certain people getting too big headed. Uh, no, but uh, but it's it, it was more of a purplish red instead of it being like a pure purple um, that they did there because of the way they made it. It was it was a little bit different. They didn't make it from shellfish because, as you can see, Thyatira is not really near shellfish of any kind. So so they didn't use shellfish. They used some other stuff to make their cloth. But anyway, they did uh, all kinds of different dyes and fabrics and various different types of merchants. And all with all these merchants came all these guilds. And as I've told you before, with the guild, one of the primary practices of the guild is idol worship. You pick a god that's that god of that particular guild and you worship that god and that's how you get 
um, that, that's how you get into the guild. You participate in these idolatrous practices. So that tells me that if you're a Christian in Thyatira, there's going to be a ton of pressure to convert or at least to sacrifice your, your Christian beliefs on the altar of pragmatic idol worship. They doesn't have to be real, just go along with everybody else. That was the pressure. Uh, as I said before, Thyatira was a small city, so there aren't a whole lot of pictures. This is about the most ancient thing I could find in Thyatira, this picture. Um, yeah, some some arches torn down. There's a couple of other stone things that are around in the same area, but that's about it from ancient ruins in Thyatira. There just aren't that many of them. And so there you go. That, that kind of orients us into the ancient world. Let's read the letter. This is Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them, with an rule them with an iron, with a rod of iron. Excuse me. And when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, as we hear your words, may, may we not only hear them in the sense that we receive the sounds, may we hear them in the sense that we apply them to our hearts, and even more so, that we obey them by applying them to our lives. Use your word in these, this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so to this church in Thyatira, we find the Lord introducing himself. Remember, all of these introductions to these seven churches are coming from the vision in chapter one. So to this one, he says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God. Now, if you're thinking, I don't remember that being in chapter one. It's a good reason for that. It wasn't in chapter one. This is the first time and it's the only time in any of the seven letters that he specifically gives himself a name that hasn't been mentioned in the book of Revelation. In fact, this is the only time 
in the book of Revelation that you find the phrase, the Son of God. Now, what's so interesting about this? I think one of the things that's interesting about it is that all of these emperors who ruled Rome at this time would have called themselves sons of a god. Um, one, for example, referred to him as Caesar, emperor, son of the divine Julius. This would be Caesar Augustus who wrote this, referring to his father, Julius Caesar. Um, they thought of themselves, they, the, the, they thought of the emperor as a son of God, of some kind of God. Maybe it was Apollo or Zeus, or maybe it was someone like a former Caesar that, that had been elevated to God-like status. But many times you find, and this happened, this wasn't just unique to Rome, this happened in Babylon, this happened in Egypt, this happened virtually every kingdom. The person ruling thought himself to be a god or thought himself to be a son of God. In other words, the divine, the divine nature was assumed to be upon the ruler. You can go to China today and they will tell you that Xi Jinping is divine or at least a son of the divine. There's something about wanting to see your ruler as divine that people tend to want to do. Um, thankfully, we don't have that problem in America because we recognize that our presidents are just not that great. <laughs> so we don't, we don't, and it, and it doesn't matter which party you are, you can admit that none of our presidents are God. All right. We, we at least have that right. Some people treat them like God sometimes, but that's a whole nother issue. But here, they would look at their ruler as being the son of God. And it's kind of interesting that Jesus, this one time, says, this is the words of the son of God. Not a pretender. Not just someone who's, a, who's in charge and so he gets the divine uh, uh, stamp of approval. This is one who really is God's son. We find this title throughout Scripture talking about Christ. But it's only here in Revelation 2.18. This is the only time in the book that it's mentioned. I think it's interesting. The words of the Son of God. By the way, he, I, I also think in the back of his mind is a psalm. Psalm 2, verse 7. Look at it. He's talking about the Lord's anointed. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The reason I think that is because a little bit later we'll see some more references to the same psalm. He's, he's seeing this link between this Jesus that he has encountered in Revelation 1, this Jesus that he has seen firsthand, and the Jesus, the, the Messiah of whom the entire scripture up to that point had talked about. He sees this Jesus as the one that's being talked about in Psalm 2 and in many other places in scripture as well. And I think he's pulling that in and showing us this isn't just some claimant to divinity. This is the one who is divine. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. One of the things that I mentioned before, the description that he chooses is tailor-made to each church. 
We have a problem here, though. We don't know much about Thyatira. About what I told you is almost all of what we know about ancient Thyatira. I, you could look at when it was founded and, and that sort of thing. And you can look at the hands changing back and forth and how it was under Pergamum for a while. And then, and then it uh, came under the auspices of Rome and, and, you know, those kinds of things. But there's not really much about the city we know. We don't know much about everyday life. So we don't know exactly what it is about eyes like flames of fire, feet burnished bronze. Why? These particular images are chosen for the church. I think in part it's because of what he's going to say to the church in a couple verses. Verse 19. I know your works. Once again, do you remember when Ephesus, when he talked about Ephesus, he talked about the good works that Ephesus was doing? Yeah. Do you remember that? In fact, well, look back. If you don't remember it, turn back a page. <laughs> if he, uh, the, I know your works, verse, chapter two, verse two. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. What he says to Ephesus is, I know what you're doing and you're doing great works. You're working hard. You're patiently enduring. You're finding out false doctrines. Okay, keep that in mind. I know your works, he tells Thyatira, your love. Now that's something that Ephesus didn't have. Ephesus had the love and then lost it. Thyatira has the love and is continuing in it. In fact, in a little bit, uh, well, look at the end of that verse. And that your later works exceed the first. Not only are they in love with Christ, but they're more and more and more in love. This is a church that, it's getting right what Ephesus has gotten wrong. Ephesus left their first love and worked hard, worked hard, worked hard, but didn't have their why. Thyatira is connected to their why. They know why they exist. I know your works, your love. Love that produces faith. This love for God is something that doesn't just stagnate. It doesn't just become these touchy-feely emotions that you can sit around and get all warm and fuzzy inside about. It's something that produces faith. When you love God, you will put your faith in Him. You will trust Him. You will act upon that love by demonstrating faith. It's a natural byproduct. He says, I know your works. I know your love. I know your faith. I know that you're trusting in me and that that trust, that love is producing service and patient endurance. You're doing the works that demonstrate the faith and the love that you have. And I see it. I see it. And that your latter works exceed the first. You're getting better every day. That's a good testimony. Like a, like a, a, a wine that gets better as it sits. This church is getting better and better each and every day. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, by the way, if you've ever seen water, water does not get better and better every day if it sits there. It has to move. This is a church that's moving. All right? Now, but. Sometimes buts are wonderful in the Bible. Sometimes that but is the greatest thing you can read in the biblical context because it's terrible. And then God says, but, and it changes everything. Unfortunately, this but is the wrong way. But I have this against you, verse 20, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure 
Jezebel was not a very popular name. How many of you uh, thought about naming your baby girl Jezebel? Yeah, we didn't either. That was not a name on the table. It just doesn't work, does it? Um, this was not a very popular name. I doubt that he's talking about a woman named Jezebel. I think he's talking metaphorically here. There's a woman who's like Jezebel. Now, who was Jezebel? Somebody remind me, who was Jezebel? Ahab's wife. What'd she do? She threatened Elijah. Yeah. Yeah. She worshiped Baal. Yeah, what didn't she do? <laughs> Might be a better question. She was an evil woman. She didn't trust in God. There you go. She was an evil woman. What John is seeing, what Jesus is seeing, and that John is writing, is that they're tolerating this woman who is nothing but trouble. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. You know, Jezebel actually thought of herself as a prophetess of Baal. Did you know that? And is teaching and seducing my servants. Now, let me, let me make one thing clear. Women can be prophetesses. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, there, are, there are some prophetesses that actually prophesied the words of God in the scripture. Go for it. You got a word from God. That's great. That's not, that's not the problem. The problem is she's not a prophetess. She's not declaring God's word. In fact, what she's doing is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. What she is doing is she's taking people's hearts away from God and turning them to false idols. She's taking this devotion, this love, this service, this perseverance, this faith that the church has in Thyatira, and she's perverting it by turning it to the wrong object. Um, I think it was Adrian Rogers that says, faith is only as good as what you put it in. Love is only as good as what you give it to. Faith is only as good as what you put it in. Service is only as good as who you're working for. Perseverance is only good if it's worth persevering in. The problem with Jezebel is that she's leading their hearts astray. Just like Balaam was leading folks in Pergamum astray. In the same way, Jezebel is leading Thyatira astray. What strikes me even more is verse 21. I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. The idea is, I've given her opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and she refuses to repent. Perhaps John had written to this person before. Perhaps, uh, maybe John hadn't, but others had. Others had called her out, called her to account, and she refused to repent. The church, apparently... We're not enforcing that. They still put up with her. They still tolerate her. Some of them are following her. I gave her time to repent. What a sad testimony. I was doing wrong. God gave me a chance to repent and I refused. That's not a good testimony. And yet, that's hers. The prophetess. The one who says that she's speaking the words of God in reality is turning far from God and will not hear God's words. You know what, you know what happens to, you know what there is supposed to happen to a false prophet? 
Do you know what the law says to do with a false prophet? Kill him. Kill him. Now, is it kill him because, um, because they're saying something that's not true? Kind of. It's kill him because they're diverting you away from God. The thing that comes between you and God, you've got to get rid of. You cannot let it sit. You cannot let it just hang out in a corner somewhere and ignore it. That's not how this works. This church was allowing a problem to fester and grow and rot away the inside of the church because it refused to deal with someone who refused to repent of her sin. You cannot let it sit. It's not like certain types of illness. The, the only course of action is just let your body fight it naturally. You can try to treat some symptoms, but you can't really do anything about it. It'll go away on its own. This isn't that kind of problem. This is the kind of problem that you've got to hit it with antibiotics and steroids or it's going to become a nightmare. Some of y'all are particularly susceptible to certain kinds of things. You get sick and it turns into something worse. Maybe you get a cold and it becomes pneumonia. Maybe it starts as a little cough and eventually it puts you in the hospital because it's a giant size of stuff on your lung that just sits there and gets worse and worse and worse. Maybe it's the kind of problem like a, um, like a rash that keeps growing and spreading until you finally do something about it. Maybe you have some sort of mole that isn't just a mole. And you keep an eye on it, but it keeps growing and growing and growing like a cancer. That's what this kind of problem is. This is a cancer. This isn't a, this isn't a virus that'll go away on its own that your body will fight off and then you'll be fine. This is a cancer. You gotta cut it out. God says, that's what I'm going to do. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. This is not the great tribulation. This is not the specific tribulation. Uh, we'll talk about that. Don't worry. That's going to come. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. I've been studying up on that, trying to prepare to teach that. That's, that's on the way. This is the general tribulation that all of us face. But this one's not just going to be a normal one. This is going to be a great one. This is going to be God opening up his wrath. So he's going to throw her on a sickbed. He's going to deal with her and he's going to deal with those who commit adultery with her. Maybe literal, maybe figurative. You know how often uh, idolatry is talked about in the Old Testament? Many times of which it's talked about symbolically as spiritual adultery. That might be what he's getting at here. It might be a literal adultery. Not quite sure. Doesn't matter. It's a problem that needs to get fixed. And God's going to fix it. Boy, makes you want to make sure you're not Jezebel, huh? Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works. It's interesting. He gave her the chance to repent. She wouldn't repent. He's giving them the chance to repent. Her works. Hmm. Verse 23. And I will strike her children dead. Oh, now it's real. This isn't just, I'm going to punish you for what you do wrong. This is, I'm going to bring utter destruction to make sure this problem doesn't take down the whole body. See, because here's what will happen. That cancer will keep growing. And it'll keep growing 
It'll keep growing until it takes everything over. Have any of you um, known someone who died of cancer, who actually died, not just had it, but died? Okay. My grandfather had esophageal cancer. Um, this was at a time where it was way too expensive to treat. They found it real late in the game. Not much the doctors could do about it, not much they could have afforded to do anyway. And so um, it was pretty much just to make him comfortable until he goes kind of situation. By the time that he died, the cancer wasn't just in his throat. It had gotten into many different systems in his body, and it was just a matter of whether it killed him before it got all the way through his body, or whether it got all the way through his body first. He had cancer pop up in many different areas of his body, because once that cancer really took root, there was no stopping it. Little by little, bit by bit, it ate away until he ended up dying from it. It just kept spreading. It wouldn't stop. That's the problem with sin. Sin would, it would be bad enough if it just infected one person and stayed in that one person. But sin is contagious. Did you know that? Now, I don't mean you shake someone's hand that's a sinner and you're going to be sinful. That's not what I'm saying. You're, by the way, you're already a sinner. So there you go. Okay. Sin is contagious. Because the more that you sin, the more that you keep sinning, the more that you bring other people into your sin with you, the further and further and further the effects of it go. You want me to prove it to you? I'm going to say one word, and it's going to prove my point. Gossip. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Can't You can't just hear that story without sharing it, can you? Some of you are like, well, I'm way too out of the loop for that to matter to me, but I know exactly what you're talking about. We all know that one person that you don't say anything around because you know that it's going to be all over town before you walk away. We all know that person, don't we? Can I tell you something? That's exactly what sin does. It spreads. Just like a cancer. We've got to cut it off. God says, I've got to cut it off. The children here are the ones who are following her. And it's not that he's striking them dead because of her sin. He's striking them dead because of their sin. Probably the worst part about this whole situation is that it started with, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your endurance, but you got a cancer and it's got to go. And then as if he was copying Ezekiel and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Everybody else is going to see what's happening here and know that I'm the one who's searching the mind and the heart. Now, in the Old Testament, who searches the mind and the heart? God. Exactly. This is the Son of God talking. I'm the one who searches it. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Just according to what you do, that's what you're going to get. Hmm. I'm starting to get whiplash. He throws in another but here. But let's go back to the good side. Verse 24 but to the rest of you in Thyatira. He's talked to this one group. By the way, this uh, um, I will give each to each of you according to his works. That's a plural you. That's y'all, okay? Then he turns to the other group, the group who hasn't been listening, but to the rest of you, all y'all in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. We don't know whether he's They're actually talking about the deep things of Satan 
or if they're talking about knowing the deep things of God and John is telling it what they really are talking about are the deep things of Satan. We don't know. Some uh, some Gnostics believe that in order to really get to the truth of God, you had to delve deep into the satanic in order to know what it is so you can defeat it. You know? Counterintelligence, so to speak. Um, don't know if that's what he's talking about here. Or if they just so, so think of themselves as holy and knowing all these deep, wonderful things of God, in reality, they only find Satan. Those of you who haven't learned those things, those of you who haven't delved into this cancerous part of the body, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. There's nothing else. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else that you're not already doing. 25. No other burden, only hold fast. Hold fast does not mean sit in a holding pattern and not do anything. Hold fast means keep going. Stay true to your course. If you're flying and you're on track, you're on course, you stay on that course. Doesn't mean you quit flying. No, you keep flying. You just keep flying in the same direction. Hold fast. Keep doing what you've been doing. Keep doing it until I come. Hold fast to what you have. The gospel of Christ that's leading you, that's brought you in love and in faith to God and, and works its way out in service and in patient endurance. Keep doing it. Keep on to that. Hold it true until I come. There's two things here. Number one is the command, keep on, keeping on. Number two is the promise, I'm coming. I'm coming. Just hold tight. I'm coming. You don't have to worry about what's to come because it's me. You don't have to worry about what you don't know in the future because I'm coming. And all you need to know is that I'm coming. You love me. You trust me. You just hang tight because I'm coming. Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my words. We haven't seen that before. It's always been just the one who conquers. He's saying the one who conquers and keeps conquering. The one who conquers and who keeps my works. Now, wait, 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 wait. Pull back verse 18. Or 19. Pull back verse 19. One more. You went one too far. There you go. Go back. Or go forward too. There you go. I know your works. Your works. I know what you've been doing. Verse 23. Nope. 22. I'm sorry. Unless they repent of her works. Verse 28. 26. I'm sorry. The one who conquers and who keeps my works. Do you see what he's doing? There's a whole lot of work going on. When he at first talks to this church, he looks at the church and he says, I see what you're doing. I see your works. I see your works. But there's a portion of you that aren't doing the same works as the rest of the church. You're not doing your works. You're doing her works, Jezebel's works, the works of the prophetess who is a false prophetess who is claiming to speak for God but who doesn't. 
You're doing her works. And because you're doing her works instead of your works, I'm going to punish you according to your works. Instead, you should be doing my works. What God is saying here to this church is you are too caught up following this false way. This cancer is eating you alive. You've got to do my works. Because if you do, to him I'll give authority over the nations. All that's waiting. You have, you have the authority. All you've got to do is my works. You do what I am showing you to do, and I'll give you authority over the nations. Verse 27, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my father. Remember, remember earlier I mentioned Psalm 2-7. I said that I think he was pulling from Psalm 2 when he described Jesus as the Son of Man, that that psalm was in the back of his mind. The reason I think that is because as he's going to the end of this through verses 26 and 27, he's almost quoting Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. Listen to Psalm 2, 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. So the first thing he says is, you're my son. Then he says, ask of me and I'm going to make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God talking to his son, talking to Messiah, says, all you have to do is ask and I will give you the earth as yours. It is yours. And now here is this same one who has been given the earth saying to them, if you do what I am commanding you to do, I will give you authority of this earth. You'll have the authority. It reminds me of Genesis 1 when, when God is puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he gives them the authority, till it, keep it, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, exercise my authority on earth. It's my earth. It's not your earth. It's my earth. But I'm giving it to you to steward for my glory. Jesus says, when you conquer, I'm going to give you the earth once again to steward for my glory. It's still my earth, but I'm letting you be in charge. We're fulfilling what God has always called us to do. And then look in verse 9. He says, you shall break them, the nations. This is generally uh, um, evil around the world. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Now there's, um, there's some difficulty in translation here. Some translations put it, you shall rule them with a rod of iron. The word is the same word for shepherd. So if I'm not mistaken, what he's saying isn't just you will pummel them to death, but your authority will be absolute. Just like a potter who makes a vessel and it doesn't quite turn out right, smashes it and starts all over. You go to dry it, it's not quite right, you just throw it on the ground and start fresh. You'll have that kind of authority, church. If you just do what I call you to do, You'll be who I created you to be. But I didn't create you to be cancerous. You can't be following Jezebel. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 28, he mentions a morning star. I don't know. There's a point in chapter 22 where Jesus is called the bright morning star. There's another point, though, in Isaiah 14 where Lucifer is called the day star. 
Some people thought this might even be talking about Venus. I don't know where they get that from, but I don't really know what he means by I will give him the morning star. Neither, neither do any scholars who are honest enough to tell you that. I've searched several and all of them agree this is very problematic. It's difficult to understand. I do know this though. It's his star to give. And if he says, I'm going to give it to you, then that's good enough for me. Church, may we not be caught up in the, in the cancer that so easily entraps and infects. May we not allow sin to fester and overrun our bodies. May we not make the mistake that some were making in Thyatira. But may we, like the other y'all, may our works be his works. May our love, our faith, our service, our endurance carry on until the day that he comes again. Father, we ask you to help us bring these words to life. Father, we don't want to bring the works of Jezebel to life. There's too many people doing that already. May we be of those who do not follow her ways, but who follow yours. And may we work to make sure that the population of your kingdom is ever increasing. May we do our part to bring you glory until that day when you do come. You establish your rule forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.